0: Well, hello, and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today, Myron is taking us through Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 through 14, and we get to see not only the interaction between Joseph's brothers and their father, Jacob, but we also get to see what Jacob is holding on to that keeps him from moving on and trusting God. Here's Myron.
1: Good morning. What a rainy weekend, huh? Hey, you guys know something about monkeys? So apparently like a way that like hunters or trappers will catch monkeys or baboons in Africa is they'll take a glass bottle, and they'll attach it to the ground and secure it in a way in which the bottle doesn't move. And then they put shiny things, jewels, sometimes food, or very compelling things inside this bottle. And the monkey's hand will go down in the bottle. But then when they make a fist and grab that item, they're unable to escape the bottle. And at this time, the hunters would run on to the monkey and capture the monkey, hunt the monkey, kill the monkey, and do whatever they do with the monkeys, right? But the monkey's unwilling to let go of whatever they've found in order to let their hand escape to run to their freedom. And now that illustration, you might be thinking, okay, like, whatever, it's a monkey. I don't really catch monkeys, so I don't need to know that tactic. But I think that's relevant, because that's how you and I probably engage with trauma, pain, hurt, grief, and loss, where we grab on and we hold on and we're unwilling to let go in order to be able to move on and find freedom. And so the illustration, illustration has been used all the time and, in, and, in, in, uh, you know, in sermons. And I think the reason it's so relevant and tangible is because that's how you and I, in our human flesh, will hold on to things. And I'm not talking like hold on to like, you know, big house, money, and the jewels of life that we're holding on to. Maybe that's some of us. Yes. But I think for the most of us, it's a hurt, it's a pain, it's a trauma, it's a betrayal, it's a loss, it's grief, it's shame, it's guilt. It's like in a weird narcissistic way, we like let that define us and we hold on to it and we're unwilling to let go of it to be free and move on and find freedom on the other side of that. Some people would rather hold on than move on. And it determines and dictates every other aspect of their life. Been there? Might be you. And so today we're going to find that in this guy named Jacob, who's the dad of Joseph, who Joseph's this guy we've been studying. And the last third of all of Genesis unpacks his story. And we'll be in Genesis 43 today. And we're going to look at this guy, Jacob. So Israel, his name is Israel. His name's Jacob. Two names, same guy. He's got 12 sons. And of his 12 sons, he's got a favorite son. And we know this favorite son's name is Joseph, who we've been studying. He's his favorite son because he's the son from his favorite wife, problematic. Go back and watch those messages. It's a dysfunctional situation. He's sold into slavery. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers conjure up this lie and say, dad, your son's dead, killed by a wild animal. And Jacob, the dad, Israel, he's troubled because he's lost He thinks his favorite son is dead. But good news for Jacob is he's got another son from that favorite wife, and his name's Benjamin. So he takes all of his favoritism and just places it now on Benjamin, and it feels like deja vu. Like, didn't he learn (laughs) the first time how favoritism caused dysfunction in his family? Now he has his second favorite, who's now his new favorite, Benjamin, and he's not the favorite from like getting all of the stuff. He's kind of the favorite because he's the overprotected child. Nothing can happen to Benjamin, nothing bad. He's wrapped in bubble wrap. He's hyper-controlling every situation, not letting anything ever happen or letting Benjamin out of his sight because he has fear of losing his son again. So for 20-plus years, the brothers who've lived with this lie that they've told dad that Joseph's dead, are living with it, and the younger brother, who got killed by a wild animal, they're perpetrating this for over 22 years. And last weekend, we saw that the brothers had to go to Egypt because of the famine, and they had to deal with their Egypt. They had to face the land of where their greatest sin was committed of selling their brother into slavery and lying to their dad that he was dead. And we unpacked how to face your Egypt, and what is your Egypt? And they get there on that first journey and they realize, well, they, they don't realize actually that the brother who they sold into slavery is now the second most powerful man in the country. He's the chief over top of the uh, collecting taxes and, and the, the seven years of plenty, storing up the, the seven years of plenty to persevere through the seven years of famine. He's the guy in charge of Pharaoh's stuff and his goods and the taxes and all of that. And they're, they're bowing down before this guy, but they don't recognize him. Why? Well, it's been 20 years. People become different. They look different after 20 years. Joseph spoke Egyptian to them. He concealed himself in that way. And also Joseph had probably some Egyptian, um, ruling attire that would be very different from what his brothers would have known him to look like. And so he's concealing himself. Joseph's concealing himself from the brothers in this visit. And he's saying, you're spies. He speaks very harshly to them and says, You're spies. And then he's like, he's like You know, like, you, you know, you know and he's like, and he puts them on this test. It's crazy. Of like, You're spies. And you know what? You're spies because, you, you know, tell them about your father. Tell them about your other brother. He's asking them all these questions. And he, we're going to see in, in the verses to come in the next chapter to this game that Joseph plays with his brothers through this process. But he ends up selling them grain. And here's what he has his servants do. He says, Hey, take the silver that they paid for the grain, put it back in their sacks. And they do. And then on the way home, <laughs> on the way home, they see that their silver that they paid for is returned in their sacks. And they go, Oh, crap. He thinks we're spies. Now he's going to think we're thieves stealing from them because they're looking at every situation, even though God wants to bless them and he's using Joseph to bless them, they're looking through the lens of their greatest sin and what was supposed to be a benefit to their life. They're like, oh my gosh, here we go. (laughs) And that's what happens when we hold on to things in our past. When We're unwilling to let go and deal with what's really happened. We look through a victimhood mentality lens of why is this happening to me. Even though God wanted to bless them, they didn't see it that way because they're looking through the lens of their guilt and their sin and their shame. So long story short, they make it home. They tell dad what happened. Hey, man, we got the grain. By the way, here's some silver that we tried to pay with. I don't know how it got there. And also, uh, if you're doing an inventory on sons, we're missing one. <laughs> we left one in Egypt, not like left one a grocery store left one. Like, you ever done that? I've been left before. <laughs> Confession times, it, it was hard. You get know, on the page and say, hey, like, I, I don't know who my mom and dad is. And they're page, Mr. and Mrs. Jellison, your son's at customer service. They didn't leave him in Egypt. He's been imprisoned. Joseph, and part of this game, this test that he's playing, he's like, you're going to leave Simeon here, and you're not going to be able to come back and have grain again until you bring me Benjamin, the other brother, that I want to see. And he's making it really hard, I think, on the brother's to not come back, like, or to, to, not, to not have to come back. Like, they have to come back. they got to come back and get more food. He knows that, but you got to bring me Benjamin. I want to see my other brother from my actual mother. And I'm going to keep Simeon to force you guys to come back here. It's all part of this game that he's playing. And so here's the thing about Jacob and this whole process of him not willing to let go is he didn't send Benjamin in the first place, so the first journey, which is a detriment to their well-being because he could have brought another camel and another sack of grain back. They would have had more food. So they're missing out on more food because he was unwilling to send Benjamin on the first journey. And now there's less food and less uh, coming back because Simeon's there. So there's two bags of grain that are uh, not coming back in this process. He 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 has a son now in prison because he wasn't willing to send Benjamin in the first place. You see, he he's been holding on to this. He's unwilling to let Benjamin go. And it's bringing hardship and pain on his whole entire family. And we're going to see in a moment to where it's like, hey, we got to go back. We got to get more grain. We're out of food. And by the way, the man warned us severely, you will not see my face unless you bring Benjamin. And dad's like, nope, still no. He's digging in his heels. He's stubborn. I'm not overprotected. He's my favorite. Making sure everybody knows that he's not my new favorite. He is not leaving my sight and Jacob's going to risk their well-being, their life because he's unwilling to let Benjamin go. And Simeon's probably like, "Dad, what about me? Are you willing to let me just rot in prison for the rest of my life because you don't want to let Benjamin come back to Egypt to get more food?" Do you see how sick this is? You see how broken this is? For 22 years the dysfunction's been crazy. And in this moment, Jacob's saying, "No, not my boy. You're not taking him." out of the fear of losing his son because he's living in the past of what happened to Joseph. And he's unwilling to let go and move on. Two years have passed. They've eaten through all their food. There's only one option. And daddy's not willing to let him go back to Egypt. This is where we pick up the story. Verse 1 of 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Here's how Jacob, Israel responds. Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Why? This is your fault, boys. Why did you tell him that you had another brother so he would use it against you for leverage for more food? I'm like, come on, man. Hold on a second. How are they supposed to know that he would play this test in this game and use leverage of Benjamin to withhold food from them? How are they supposed to know? But don't miss this. Israel's like, hey, guys, why didn't you lie? Why didn't you lie? Why didn't you bear false witness? Why didn't you try to manipulate the situation? This is your fault. You have brought this on me. And he shifts the blame. This is what happens when you get defined by the hurt in your past. You become a victim. And everything else around you is everyone else's fault. And you point fingers and you want to blame society. You want to blame culture. You want to blame politicians. You want to blame friends. You want to blame relatives. You want to blame him. You want to blame her. The reality is, is, Jacob, a lot of this is you're doing. You brought all this, why are you, you're, caught, you're you're asking them to lie for you? You're looking through this perpetual victim mindset. Ever met somebody like that? Where it's always about everyone else's fault, everyone else's problems, and woe is me, and they're living by a defining moment, a grief, a loss, a betrayal, a hurt, a circumstance. It becomes so a part of their identity that it's robbing them and, and robbing the life of the people around them. This is Jacob. He's unwilling to let go and he's asking his boys to lie. This is your fault. Why didn't you lie? And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Sidebar, go back and read last chapter. We don't see Joseph asking these questions. He's asking them to lie. Jacob's asking them to lie to this man, but now they're lying to dad. How broken is this family? It's crazy. But Judah Judah says to Israel's father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once. Oh no, I missed a verse. I'm sorry. "Do Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Again, how would we know he would use this as letter? Come on, Jacob, give your sons a break. How are they supposed to know? Quit blaming them. And Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. It's do or die time. Like, hey, we've burned through the two years worth of grain. We've burned through all of our crops, all of our supplies. It's scarce. Like we are in a do or die situation. And Judas says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before all before you all of my life. As it is, as it is, if I am delayed, oop! I am butchering this verse. <laughs> Bible reading is tough sometimes. I get it. I will bear the blame before you all of my life. As it is, if we have not delayed. We could have gone and returned twice. Dad, listen up. This is a 250-mile journey by camel, by donkey. This is not just a trip to Kroger to get more bread. This is a long haul. Dad, we could have been there and back twice if you hadn't dug your heels in and been so stubborn, and we told you Benny's got to go, but you've run us dry, and it's do or die now. And there are people who are in a victimhood mentality who are delaying and it's their identity and they're causing suffering around the people they love the most because they're unwilling to let go and move on. Dad, we could have been there twice by now and we have depleted all of our resources. We got to go. This shows just how desperate they are, how long Jacob had been delaying. How the unnecessary hardship has been brought on him and his family, his loved ones, his grandkids, all of them. And Jesus like, Dad, we got to go. Come on. I'll take full responsibility for this boy. We need food. Send him with me. This is what Israel says. If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spice and myrrh, some pistachios and some almonds take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your older brother and Benjamin come back to you. You see this older brother? He didn't even call him by name. As for you, if I am bereaved, I am He's like, hey, okay, hold on. So right, in desperation, Judah's like, I got the boy. He's my responsibility. We got to go. Dad's like, OK, if you're going to go, here's what you got to do. Take the best of everything that we got. It ain't much, but take everything that we have. Because I want you to impress the man. I want you to take the silver that we owed him as well, so we're not accused as being thieves. I want you to give him a gift that's so big that it guarantees Benny's coming home. Oh, and the other guy, <laughs> whatever. It's fine. I don't even know his name. It's not a big deal. Benny's got to come home, take everything, take the best of what we got, all the silver, because I need Benny to be safe. You see the lengths that he's going to because he's living out of the view of his past to protect, protect Benny? He's willing to trade the imprisonment of his other son. And Simeon's probably like, Dad, you don't care about me? You don't even mention me by name. I'm not important to you? Not really. It's all about Benny. So messed up. But out of desperation, he's got to let go and we'll see future. We'll see freedom in the, fu- in the future. Because him holding on wasn't helping anything. It was only hurting. And as we will see in this section and, and the sections to come, freedom's coming. Restoration's coming. God's plan is coming. He's going to get Benjamin back if he lets go. He's going to get Simeon back. And it's like he's going to get Joseph back from the dead. Because in Jacob's mind, he's dead. He's going to be restored to his favorite son. It's going to be beautiful. But he would never be able to experience God's blessing if he wasn't willing to let go of Benjamin, move on, and trust God. So I want to dive into this little incident with Jacob to see how it applies to our lives today. We talked about how to face our Egypt, confess it, healing and revealing, all of that. But this week, I want to look at our grief Our hurts, our pains, our shame, our biggest struggles and regrets. How do we move on? How do we let go and find freedom? Because the reality is, is some of you are in that right now. Some of you have been through that. And some of you are like, I've never had a hard thing in my life. Just wait. I'm serious. And not to be like lighthearted about it, but a loved one will die. A diagnosis will come. There will be some pain and trauma and and hard thing that you are going to have to go through. And if we don't learn from Jacob's mistakes and we hold on to that, it will rob you and ruin you in this life and in your future. And you won't have the life that God wants you to have. So how do we deal with it? How do we move on? Three questions I want to ask. Why did this happen? What should we do now? How do we move on? Because when we experience pain, trauma, betrayal, hurt, and grief, it will come. A lot of times we have this logic in this world of like, okay, so you don't have shoes? Find somebody who doesn't have feet. You'll feel better. Like we just want to use comparison of like, oh, my life's not as bad as them. My marriage is bad, but their marriage, woo. My marriage looks good compared to that. My kids, they're, they're well-behaved compared to that. My job situation, it's better in compared to that. Oh, I lost my grandma or my grandpa. I didn't lose four at once. You know, in comparison, it's like if we try to make it not feel so bad, but in reality, it doesn't help at all. It's kind of like if you came to me and said, I got back pain. I'm going to give me your pinky. Snap your pinky. Now your back don't hurt. That's like barbaric. That's just just foolish. Now I've got a hurting back and a hurting finger. It doesn't really help at all. But that's the logic that we have in comparison. It, it's bogus because pain is like this, hurt is like this, grief is like this. It's like a smoke alarm. Anybody had their like kitchen catch on fire? Ever have a house burned down? That's few of you I know. When that smoke alarm goes off and that kind of flames happening, uh oh. But how many of you have burned dinner before? No one's being honest. Come on, people. You burnt toast before in the toaster. You set that thing off and everyone goes, what's going on? When we experience pain, it's like a smoke alarm going off. But we want to go, ah, I saw the house fire, it's not that big a deal. But in our bodies, we have a response, an emotional response, a physical response to grief, to pain, to trauma, to hurt. And I know this illustration breaks down in this point, but when it goes off, if you want to silence it, especially in the house fire, get out, get your loved ones to get out. But when the smoke alarm goes off, How do you stop it? You push the silence button. You got to go to the source, get the toast out, get the dinner out of the skillet, take care of the issue, silence the alarm so you can move on. And keep that in mind as we go through this. Everyone experiences pain like a smoke alarm. When it goes off, it goes off. And we can't belittle and use comparison to say it's not that big of a deal. In the moment, it's a big deal. I get that. But here's the thing. If you just want to keep running from the problem and not deal with the source of why the alarm's going off, you'll never find freedom. You'll keep burning toast. It'll keep going off, and it'll be a cycle. And oftentimes, we want to give God everything in our life. But there's this one thing, this one Benjamin thing that we got that we're unwilling to let go of. Let God trust him and move on. All of us want to hold on But you can't move on if you hold on. So the first question is, why did this happen? It's not that you want to ask this question. You're going to ask the question, why? We're human. We do this. Why is this happening to me? There's three things the Bible talks about, I think, will indicate why things happen. Number one, was it self-inflicted? was what's happening to you self-inflicted. I think the majority of what we experience in this life, pain, trauma, and hurt, is self-inflicted. I want to go to David and Bathsheba real quick. I want you to read it, Second Samuel. Read it, small groups, talk about it, study it. David sees his best soldier's wife, Uriah, his best soldier, one of his leaders in his military. His wife sees her, lusts after her, wants her, sends for her, brings her to his chambers, has sex with her, Gets her pregnant, goes, "Uh uh-oh, sends Uriah and his military out to battle and tells everybody else, hey, pull back, leave Uriah out by himself to drive. Basically, let him get murdered at war, try to cover it up. And now he's got blood on his hands. He's got adultery on his hands. He's feeling the weight of this. Then a guy, Nathan, a prophet, shows up and tells David a story. And David goes, yeah, that dude should totally die for what he did. Nathan's like, hey, bro. That's you. That's you. And David goes, yeah, surely you are right. And surely I have sinned against God. And he owns it. He confesses it. And Nathan says, yeah, you're good. You're forgiven. Nothing's going to happen to you. But there's a consequence. The baby's going to die. That baby's not going to live. And oftentimes, we have this mindset when there's self-inflicted pain or there's a consequence based on our stupidity, we want to blame God for it. If you want to move on, you got to stop blaming God for what you brought on yourself. Because oftentimes, well, not often, there's been a few circumstances in my life to where people have come to me, unwed pregnancies, and they go, man, like, why is God allowing this to happen to me? And I'm like, well, unless your name was Mary, I'm not sure he was really kind of there in that, I mean, he's the author of life. And so he, you know, he's in in conception, but the activities that produce that baby, that's on you. You chose to live outside of God's design of sexuality. And so don't blame God for that circumstance and situation you find yourself in when you made the decision. There's other times where like finances and and couples and buying houses you can't afford and cars you can't afford and, and you made a poor investment or you gambled some money away and you took a risk and you're in financial ruin and you go, God, why is this happening to me? It's like, you made a dumb financial move. You didn't manage your finances correctly. You can't blame God for something you did on yourself. Like if you're playing in the street and you get hit by a car, don't blame the car. It's on you. You know, I guess people like athletes, and I was an athlete who had a season or career-ending shoulder injury, and I wanted to blame God for my injury. I was like, no, dude, you're destroying your body in this game all day, every day. Of course you're going to tear your road. Of course you're going to tear something. It's the consequences of doing things that you full well know the consequences are. An option, and you do them anyway, can't blame God. If you're going to move on, take responsibility for your actions. Own it. David, he took responsibility. I I did this. I brought this on myself. And here's a good recipe for moving on over self-inflicted wounds. is the baby was born and it was going to die, seven days that baby would die. But during that seven days when the baby was born to it died, David didn't eat. He wept. He mourned. He grieved. He was a mess. The servants were like, I don't know if we can tell him the baby's dead, because if we tell him the baby's dead, he might do something crazy out of desperation. David hears the servants whispering, and David goes, the baby's dead, isn't he? And they go, yep. He cleans himself up, takes a shower, goes into the house of the Lord, the temple, and worships God, eats food for the first time. And then he ends up comforting Bathsheba, making love to her. I don't know the timeline exactly. Then Solomon is born, and God loves Solomon, and God Solomon is one of the most profound kings in all of the nation of Israel's history. There was redemption on the other side of it. But David said, "Hey, I messed up. I own this. I grieve through the process and the consequences of it for seven days. But then I clean myself up. I worship God, and I move on." Seven days isn't the magic number of grief. Sometimes it's longer, and the season of pain that you got to go through to heal is longer. And it's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to deal with the consequences. It's okay to whine to God. It's okay to whine to your friends. It's okay to confess it, that you're struggling to your small group, and navigate and walk over a season. But then you got to clean yourself up. you got to pick yourself up. you got to praise God, worship him, and find freedom on the other side. The second thing about why. So if it's not self-inflicted, here would be the second reason. Was I caught in the backwash of someone else's sin? Am I just collateral damage and somebody else's wrongs? And that is way too frequent in this life. And that's one of the greatest injustices I think that we experience. We did nothing to deserve it. But because of the fallenness of humanity, the brokenness of humanity, that sin exists in every single person, we get affected by it, by other people's decisions and poor decisions. I think about Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, we studied this. Parents are grieving the loss of a son by murder of the other son. They had nothing to do with it. But it's a trauma, it's a loss, it's grief, it's pain that they have to navigate at the hands of somebody else's sin. This happens over and over and over in our society. Mass shootings, killings, violent criminals, rape, you name it. The horrific things that happen to the innocent. It's because of sin. And so you might just be, whatever you've experienced, might just be in the backwash, collateral of somebody else's stupidity, sin, and poor decisions. And I know I say all that, and it doesn't make it feel any better. I know. I know it doesn't make it feel any better, but that's a plausible explanation of why. If it wasn't self-inflicted, it might be inflicted by somebody else as you are collateral. And the third reason why we can answer this question is, was it for a larger purpose? Was it for a larger purpose? Why did this happen? I might be doing something bigger and beyond what you can begin to imagine, and, 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 and you're going to have to go through it for a while. Genesis 45, I'm going to spoil the end of the story for you. We'll get there in 45. But all along the way, as Joseph is sold into slavery, he works his way up to be chief slave in Potiphar's house, falsely accused of rape to his wife, falsely imprisoned, in prison for a while. Finally, he is exalted or or works his way up to second in command over Egypt. But through that whole entire process, I don't know if Joseph knew what was coming exactly. He had a promise. He knew that God was going to do something good. But in those 22 years, I'm sure he didn't see it. But then when he reveals himself to his brothers in 45, chapter 45, he tells the story. I remember this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And praise God, because I'm here to save your life. I was positioned, God worked, he orchestrated all of this so that I could save you, my family, my father, my nation, my people, preserve preserve the lineage of God's chosen people. And I went through 22 years of hell in order to be placed here at a time like this to fulfill God's promise, a greater purpose. And that might be true in your life too. And when we ask the why question, no logic, rationale, and reason I can give you is going to satisfy the pain that you experience. It won't. And so the why question, we can't always fully know and understand the why. It's the wrong question. We shouldn't ask the why. We have to ask the why. We will ask the why. But here's what we should ask. Question two, what should I do now? What should I do now? It's here. It happened. First thing is you got to embrace the pain and the grief. David embraced the pain and the grief for seven days. The consequences are happening. I can't change it. I can't go back. Command Z, undo. Not going to happen. I'm going to embrace the reality of what is happening. And I'm going to mourn. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to deal with the consequences. Jesus wept at the loss of his childhood best friend, Lazarus. He cried. He wept. Grieved by it. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He grieved the loss of a loved one. Jesus, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating bullets, or sweating blood, bullets of blood, because he's under duress and stress and anxiety of what he's about to have to go through of being beaten, whipped, and crucified. He's praying, God, is there any other way? Please. But if not, God, your will be done. And so the suffering and the pain, he embraced the pain and the grief of what he was having to do for the larger purpose. And, I, and Jesus didn't do this on the cross. For the greater purpose it's amazing he said, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was extreme pain and grief that even Jesus had to go through, and he embraced it for something bigger and beyond what he wanted in his flesh. See mourning and grievings and A natural process. It's a necessary process that all of us go. It's a smoke alarm. We have to address it and deal with it. But you can't set up camp there. You can't live in that. It's debilitating. It robs you of life, peace, and joy, and the abundant life that Jesus wants you to have. Yes, you can cry out to God. Yes, you can cry out to your friends. Yeah, you can grieve. You can cry. You can mourn for a season. We're all called to. And here's what we should do. When someone's grieving and when someone's mourning, the Bible says mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. Don't try to compare and belittle and say, well, it's not as bad as this person. Let them grieve. And you just look them in the eyes and say, I'm so sorry. I'm not here to try to fix your problems. I'm here to mourn with you. I'm here to grieve with you. I'm here to be empathetic with you. And walk this out as your brother and sister in Christ, loving you through this hurt and pain and trauma that you're experiencing. Because oftentimes when, when things happen, we just want to throw Romans 8:28 at people. God's working all things for the good. Buck up, bro. Figure it out. It'll be fine. It doesn't really help anybody in the moment, does it? Grieve with them. Mourn with them. And then after a season of time, if they're in a victimhood mentality, letting it rule their life, you might come to them and say, hey, Romans 8:28. there's a greater good here. Romans 8.18, hey, like I don't count these temporary sufferings in comparison to the glory that we will once receive. Like they pale in comparison. You know, the author of James counted pure joy when you face suffering of many kinds. You can use these verses as, as encouragement to help them deal with it and navigate it, but not in the moment. You got to grieve with them. Walk with them. Love them. Help them embrace. You embrace in a season of mourning and grieving and then cling to the promise there's something better, something good coming out of this. And it might not be your definition of good. Romans 8:28. it's not about your good. It's about the good that God wants for you, which is very different than your flesh good. And that's the promise that he has for you. Embrace it. Second thing you got to do in the now is embrace your blessings. Embrace your blessings. In the midst of heartache, trauma, pain, betrayal, loss, there are micro blessings that are all around you that you'll miss if you're so fixated on the loss or the hurt. You'll miss out. There are so many good things. It might be hard to see them, but you have to find them, identify them, praise God, thank God for them, and then focus on them. The Bible talks about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, think on those things. There are blessings in your life every single day in the midst of your suffering and your pain. Find those, highlight those, praise God for those, and focus on them. They make all the difference. Now, I'm not talking about the people who are pessimistic versus optimistic, half full, half empty people. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about just powerful of wishful thinking. I'm talking about things that are actually good. Not your your ability to go, this is really bad, this is really bad, you know, what? but I'm just going to mentally have an exercise. It's good. It's fine. It's good. It's fine. It's great. It's no worries. It's not what I'm talking about. Things that are actually good. And there are things that are actually good. Highlight them. Identify them. Praise God. Focus on them. It'll kill the bitterness in your heart. It'll kill the animosity in your heart. It'll allow you to see maybe what God is up to in spite of what you're going through. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like taking an antibiotic for an infection. It'll help you kick it quicker than if it just ran its course. You'll heal faster if you focus and embrace your blessings. There's good. Find it. Third thing in the now, what do I do? Embrace the new normal. Embrace your new normal. The new normal word was a buzzword during COVID, right? The new normal is masks everywhere, virtual school, the Z word, Zoom. Like, it was like, ah, it's the new normal, Like, just, you gotta embrace it, because if you don't embrace it, you're gonna be miserable. And we're longing to get back to things to how they used to be, and yeah, some things we fight for, yeah, we gotta get back to this. Some things are here to stay. Same thing is true through your pain, and through your grief, and through your trauma. There's gonna be new rhythms in your life, there's gonna be new relationships, there's gonna be new boundaries, there's gonna be new things, like, that person's not gonna be there now. The relationship has been severed. Trust is gone. It's going to need to be earned now. It's going to be a new normal in this season that you have to embrace in order to persevere through it well. You see, Joseph, he embraced every new normal he faced. Slavery, he embraced it, became the best slave. Prison, embraced it, became the best chief inmate. Servant to Egypt, became the best second in command. He embraced every new normal. Jacob, on the other hand, still living through the lens of loss of Joseph. He never embraced a life without him. He was never able to move on. I'm going to put Benny in a bubble. I'm going to control everything about this circumstance so it doesn't happen again. I'm going to let my life be defined by that. And in Jacob's situation, it got worse and worse and worse, probably for 22 years. You got to embrace the new normal. And the final question we have to ask is how do I move on? How do I really move on after this? And the first thing you got to do is you got to quit picking at the scab. You ever had a boo-boo? I got kids with boo-boos. Kisses and band-aids fix all boo-boos. It's not true for us, is it? But like a scab, when you have that wound and you keep picking at the scab before you let the natural processes fully heal that wound, it keeps bleeding. And it delays the healing process. And so you and I, we keep picking at the scab. We keep picking at the event. We keep picking at the circumstance. We keep going back there. And it doesn't mean that you don't remember. Because let's face it, you can't forget You'll never be able to forget. You can't have amnesia. But Joseph, he didn't forget. He just chose not to focus on it and keep picking and blaming his brothers and blaming Potiphar and his wife and blaming everything that around him that's happened. He never once had a victim mentality of blaming others. He simply embraced it. He didn't pick at the scab and keep opening old wounds. But he remembered. He told the cup baker and the uh, chief baker, the cup bearer and the chief baker, he told him his story in prison. This is what happened to me. Remember me when you get out. This is what happened to me. So he knows. He just chose not to pick and pick and pick and pick. Jacob, he let everybody know. <laughs> I lost Joseph. And Benny's proof, I ain't let nothing happen to this boy. I'm keeping him by my side. Through his attitude, through his body language, through every aspect of his life, I'm sure it was woe is me. He kept picking at it and it never truly Healed. So, how do you know if you're picking at it? How do you know if you're picking at it? Well, other people can tell you. If you want to humble yourself, ask somebody hey, is this defining me? They'll tell you. Your spouse, your kids, your life group, your loved ones. That if you really want to hear what's true about you, ask somebody else who knows you. But here's other ways you can know that you're picking at it does it dominate your thoughts? Does that event dominate your thoughts? Does it consume all of your mental space and your mental health and your mental energy? Does it consume your thoughts? Does it dominate your thoughts? Because I've heard it put this way, your life drifts in the direction of your strongest thoughts. And if you're constantly thinking about it, you'll have a victim mentality of woe is me. Your life will drift that way. Does it dominate your thoughts? You're picking if it is. Does it isolate you from others? Does it isolate you from others? If you find yourself being lonely, you might want to audit yourself and go, why? Am I someone that people don't like being around because I have a victim mentality and I'm pushing everybody who loves me away because I'm looking at everything in my life through this lens of this thing? If it's isolating you from society and from friends and loved ones and coworkers, it might be because you're picking at the wound. Does it paralyze you from making decisions? Third thing. Are you paralyzed by being able to make the best decision in the moment for your life and for your future because you're letting that cloud your judgment, cloud your headspace, isolating you from others and wise counsel and those who love you the most and an inability to make decisions? It's paralyzing. If so, by picking. And the final way is, are you hyper-controlling and you need someone to tell this to you because anybody who's hyper-controlling doesn't think they're hyper-controlling. They go, I'm wise. I'm very prudent and diligent, careful, calculated, safe. And you go, no, bro, you're, you're, you're hyper-controlling because of what's happened to you. And it's dictating every aspect of your life now, robbing you of freedom and true life. Second thing, how you move on, is you gotta trade fear for faith. If you live your life through the lens of fear, it'll paralyze you, it'll consume you, and it'll rob you. And so (laughs) faith is not the absence of fear. Where it's like, okay, I feel I feel perfectly great about all this. I'm gonna jump in with faith. No. Faith is trusting God enough to do what he says. Faith isn't the absence of fear. It's, it's the absence of disobedience. It's when we can do what God says, do the next right thing. You can be scared out of your mind, terrified, and still have faith and trust God. Because if you try to parent, let me talk to parents, if you try to parent through the lens of fear, you're going to put a burden on your kids they were never meant to carry. And the thing that parents try to protect their kids from the most is themselves. Who I used to be. Mistakes I made. And I want to put them in bubble wrap so they don't have to go through what I went through. And you hyper-control out of fear. And when you try to do that, they just squirm even harder and get out and repeat the same things. What you didn't want to happen will, ev- will inevitably happen when you parent out of fear. But when you parent out of love and relationship, conversation, sharing the why, sharing your story at age-appropriate levels and being honest with your kids... There's no fear anymore. And you trust that God's going to be in that process and you let go and you trust God. You can be scared to death, the parent. I know, I am. Do it scared with faith before God. You ever ever have a fear-based relationship or maybe you have fear-based relationships. Let me be honest with you. It's hard to love a porcupine. People can't get close to you. When you've got your guard up because of what's been done to you by somebody in the past. You might be, I'm single. I can't find love. And I'm like, Hey, hold on. Are you living with a fear-based mentality of that all men are going to treat you that way? All girls are going to act like that because of your experience in your past? It's hard to love a porcupine. You got to deal with that. You got to trade in the fear for faith. And walk in freedom of what God has. In a business, in a job, if there's fear-based leadership, a bunch of rules and and hyper-controlling and consequences that come down, no one wants to work in those environments. No one flourishes in those environments. When fear is the basis that dictates our life, it's undermining your happiness and your joy, your peace, and the life abundantly that God wants you to have. Don't be afraid. Don't let fear define you because of your past. Let your faith define you. Do it scared in every aspect. And the final thing as we go is we got to let our Benjamins go. you got to let Benny go. Whatever it is, loss of someone. Maybe it's the loss of a dream that you once had that's no longer a reality. The inability to have something that you wanted so badly to have. Maybe it's the marriage, maybe it's the relationship, maybe it's the kid, maybe it's the job, maybe it's the career, maybe it's someone who betrayed you and hurt you, maybe it's someone who violated you in horrific ways, bitterness over something that happened. What is the one thing that's determining all the other things in your life? What's the one thing that in a weird way you're holding on to with your hand in the glass jar? This defines me. This is a part of me. God, you can have every other thing, but not this. That other people are being pushed away from you. You're isolating yourself. You're paralyzed and can't make decisions. You keep bleeding because you keep picking and you won't truly heal. What is that for you? You got to let your Benjamin go. It might be a week. It might be 10 years. It might be 22 years. Joseph, 22 years. For he sees the blessing of God through his pain. Jacob, for 22 years, held on to Benjamin. And finally, he's got to let him go to move on to the blessing that God has for him. And he's going to get abundantly more than what he could begin to imagine. He thinks Joseph's dead. He's coming back to life. There's something beautiful on the other side of this. I promise you. I'm not trying to belittle the pain that you might be in. I'll grieve with you. I'm so sorry. But there's something amazing coming, a greater purpose. But you will not walk in that if you don't let go. Let God and trust him in what he has. Father, would you just empower us to trust you? God, would you help us let go of our Benjamins? God, would you let us find healing and restoration, forgiveness, restoration to our hearts and our minds. God, would you allow us to to grow into everything that you want us to be, that there is purpose in our pain. You'll take our mess and make it a message of your goodness, and we would hold on. We would not lose hope. We would remain faithful. We do the right things. And God, we would just wait for anticipation with hope of what you're about to do. God, help us mourn well, help us grief, help us carry one another's burdens, confess our sins to one another so we can pray for one another and there's healing in that process. We deal with our Egypts, we deal with our Benjamins, we deal with the dysfunction, we deal with the hurt, we deal with the pain. And God, you would just bring healing to marriages, to families, to workplaces. You would just do some miracles, God, in and through us right now give us the courage to let go of what we've been holding on to the most and find true freedom and life abundant in and through you alone and i pray in jesus name amen
0: thanks for joining us on the vineyard church podcast today it's our greatest desire for people to find and follow god and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that but don't stop here we would love to see you face to face God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.